most of all, help us to feel your love today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as you turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter 2 is where we pick up this morning in our walk through 1 Peter. One of the things uh, we do as human beings when we go through things like, like we just went through, kindergarten graduation on one week, and then high school graduation yesterday, you go through these events, you reflect and think back how fast time has moved, how much you can remember uh, of those early years, um, how much um, everything is and has changed, what will the next several years look like. Me and Jennifer looked at each other at immigration's graduation yesterday toward the end and said, okay, two down. Uh, some of our parent friends that were there are now entering their empty nest years. And we're like, gosh, we can't even imagine that. In 2037, we'll be right there with you. I'll be 61. Maybe my, um, my AI clone can go to the graduation, and I don't have to go and get in all my fields and stuff like that. Who knows what the world will look like in 2037 when we get to that point. But as life quickly moves forward as change seems to multiply exponentially, it's even more crucial for us to ground our lives in the timeless bedrock truth that is the Word of God. Like I was just thinking this morning, driving here with Immigrace, just how monumental it is to graduate high school and to go to college. Like it's one of the most abrupt, transforming events of your life. Literally all that you've been doing for like 12 years is just over and who you've been as you go into a college campus means nothing nobody knows who you were you're this new person and you can become this new person in good ways hopefully not unhealthy ways but it's it's so life-altering like you really have to have your life grounded in something that transcends all of that and that's true for all of us wherever we move and whatever we go through we have to have our lives drilled into something that can, can hold us firm and steady through this ever-changing world. Truths that, keep giving, that give us a bearing and a way forward to navigate life, no matter how much the world changes. And we have that passage today, along with the rest of God's Word. We'll walk through these two verses in 1 Peter 2, and we'll find a way of life that calls us to fight the internal battle in order to display the external beauty of Jesus with the hope of others coming to Him. Verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from simple desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. These verses really mark a transition in this letter of 1 Peter. We've been digging into the deep theological truths about who we are with some application and now really the, the rest of the letter is going to be a ton of practical application, much like how Paul writes his letters, these, these theological truths about identity, and then the rest of his letter, it's all about implications of that new identity. And that's what we have in First Peter. Peter's laid a thick foundation of this new identity we have in Jesus. Let's be very practical moving forward. And he marks the transition with this phrase, dear friends, probably better translated in the ESV as beloved, Remember my relationship with you, beloved, ones that I love. My words are driven by my love for you. This bond we share is a bond of love for your good. And then he gives a strong exhortation, I urge you. Probably not strong enough. It's more like I strongly urge you. I strongly appeal to you. Not 
demanding or commanding, but exhorting them, pleading with them. This is really important. Do this. As strangers and aliens, he says. So before he gets into what he urges them to do, he reminds them of who they are, which is the, 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 the hinge of this passage, why it's so important for us. We are something before we do something. And the reality of who we are in this world drives us to this tension of, okay, how do we live? If this is who God has made us in Christ Jesus, and, and we're described in ways as strangers and exiles, then how are we supposed to live in this world? We saw this last week, this, this identity passage, verse 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God gives us this new identity in Jesus. We are a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. We saw this last week. We are a people for his own possession. We are God's people who have received mercy. This is true of you and me from day one of being born again. More language from the first chapter. Born again through the living and enduring word of God we saw. We are recipients of this new birth. We have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Back in chapter 1, verse 5, we are being guarded in this by God's power. So this work that God does in us in salvation to transform us and make us into this new person is guarded by God's power. If it was our power guarding it, we would lose it. But he guards it. He keeps it by his power. And all of these things are true of us from the first second of this transformation we call conversion. The new birth, being born again. We don't grow into this. We are given this. We are made this as new creations in Christ Jesus. Like all of the work of getting married, two people meeting, beginning a relationship. Some of you remember those days, this mutual affection, this desire that grows beyond attraction to to really like each other, and then one day somebody drops the other L word, and it just intensifies. You begin to have conversations. How far could this go? How much do we really love and adore each other? What would it look like for us to be married? How many kids do you want? I want this many kids. Where would we live? What would we do? Like those who are married, you, re you remember those conversations. All of this pre-planning before even the engagement all of the dreams you begin to imagine having with each other, you imagine this life together, but are you married? Nope, still not married. Eventually, the relationship gets to the point where a ring is purchased. A young man with a lot of money, his hands shaking. Uh, I've never spent this much money on anything. Oh my gosh, what am I doing? Then he begins to plan, how am I going to ask? What will it look like? I, honestly, I feel sorry for guys today who have to do this. I think this was a lot easier in the 1900s. Today, you've got to factor in location and how it looks and how it will look on social media and who's going to record it and who's going to be there. I pray for my sons all the time when I think about that. But that day comes where he drops to a knee and he says, will you? And hopefully, she says, yes. But are they married? Nope. In a lot of ways, they look married. Still not married. Then you plan for the big day, where, when, what to wear, who to invite, who will join us in the bridal party, who, where are we going on our honeymoon, how will we celebrate, what will the reception look like. So much work to do, so worth it. 
We'll do it all over again in a second. Like Jennifer and I are about to celebrate 24 years. We'll do it all over again in a second. Kevin and Nancy celebrating 40 years today. Yes. They're like, I knew we shouldn't have come today. <laughs> we got to uh, eat supper with them this past week and asked them, like, what do you remember about this week 40 years ago? Kevin's like, well, I drove down and I worked for my father-in-law. He had a lot of work for me to do. But whatever he told me to do, I was going to do it because I wanted to marry that girl. It was all worth it, all the excitement, all the hard work. As they shared stories with us about the ups and downs of 40 years of marriage. Yeah, they would do it all over again in a second. But they and us and still others, you have to still get to the point in the ceremony where you proclaim your love through the I do's and the promises that form the bonds of marriage and making promises before God and family and friends enough for someone to finally declare to you, I now pronounce you husband and wife. And then, you, and then you've got to sign a piece of paper or the state won't recognize it. Before you're officially married, you're never kind of married, you're never halfway married, you're never partly married, you're married or you're not married. Guys, it's the same with salvation. You are born again, recipients of the new birth, the dwelling place of God, God dwells inside of you or you're not. You become a Christian because God raises you from the dead, you grow up in your faith, you mature, of course, we all go through that, but you're still God's people as you go through that process. And part of this identity that we have is we are strangers and exiles. In some ways, we don't and won't ever truly be at home in this world because of this new identity we have in Christ. And so one of the questions you have to ask is if you don't feel this tension as a stranger in an exile, if you don't feel this affirmation that I'm one of God's people, I'm a dearly loved son and daughter of my Father in heaven, I, I'm, I'm part of the royal priesthood, I'm part of this holy nation. If you don't, you don't feel that, then you certainly need to ask, am I his? But that's a question you, you should never assume salvation. You should always examine salvation. Am I his? Do I see the fruits? Is the body of Christ affirm that I've been born again and see the fruits of repentance and fruits of obedience? But once you have this new identity, then you experience this reality that you are not home in this world. No matter how well of a job we do at adapting to life in this world, we always get to the point where we realize we don't belong. We chase the temporary pleasures of creation, which are great, but the pleasures don't last. They eventually leave us empty. We meet, weep and mourn at how broken this place still is. The death, the sin, the suffering, the sorrow, all intruders, not part of the original creation, won't be part of the or, uh, eternal state. And they feel like intruders because deep in our soul, we know death does not belong. Death is the most unnatural, natural thing we experience. It is weird. It's, I've never gotten over it. It's weird. You're looking at this person that you just were loving and just enjoying life with, and you can no longer do that, yet there they are. It's an intruder. It doesn't belong. It's an unnatural feeling because it doesn't make sense. We know deep down we are not meant to say goodbye like that, and one day we will never say goodbye again all part of what it means to be a stranger in an exile. 
So what do we do with that reality of not feeling like we're home, not feeling like we belong? Do we, do we try and shed those identifying realities? Like, let me get rid of this work of Jesus so I can fit in better. Let me no longer identify with Jesus so I will feel more at home because I don't like that tension. No. If we could do that, then we were never his to begin with. We don't do that. Peter, in fact, doubles down on this new identity with the internal work of abstaining, we see in verse 11, abstaining from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Or as the ESV says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Now, the flesh in one sense in the New Testament could be understood to be what makes us human. So we have human needs and desires that are true of all humans. We want to sleep, eat, drink, rest. We want intimacy, connection. We want relationship. We want to be loved valued, not dismissed, not invalidated. We want a voice. We want to be heard. We want to be cared for. We want people to know and think what we feel is important. This is true of every single human being on earth. So Peter's not saying to abstain from those passions and desires. That's part of being human. We all live, everyone lives seeking to fulfill these needs and desires. And God has plans and means for us to fulfill those needs in ways that are life-giving and soul-protecting and not soul-destroying. And it's very, very important as a human being to recognize those needs in yourself and to seek Jesus to help fulfill those needs as God has ordained. And it's equally as important for you to recognize those needs in the other people in your life. And to value that and validate that and say, let me help you seek Jesus to have these needs fulfilled in him. And when those needs aren't being met, because they aren't always met perfectly because of this broken world we live in, we run to him for help. And we don't just run to unhealthy responses to those needs not being met. So th this, this exhortation here is not talking about those needs of the flesh. But the context of Peter's letter helps us see what he is talking about. And it's more like it's translated in the CSB to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against our soul. The flesh in the New Testament can also be understood as that part of us that is the old man, the unredeemed nature that we all still possess and will possess until we leave this body behind. We're ushered into the presence of Jesus and we're instantly transformed to the image of Christ. The new man, the redeemed part of us, is also present. So we have this new man that is very secure. God does live inside of us. That's always true. But we also still have this old man. And this is the battle Peter's referring to. You see this in some other places. 1 Peter chapter 1, back in chapter 1, verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who called you is holy, you are also to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7. Paul writes, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch. Leaven there is a reference to sin. So boasting is the presence of sin in the context of 1 Corinthians 5. Don't you know that a little sin spreads to the whole batch of dough? So don't let sin take root in your life. It can spread to all of you. Clean out the, the old leaven, this old fleshy nature, so that you may 
be a new unleavened batch, as, and he says, as indeed you are. So do this work because Christ has already made you this person. You have the presence of the new man that supplies the power and the energy from which you can clean out the old man. And more and more no longer see the old man the, or woman, if you prefer that, the old nature rule and control your life. We see this very clearly in Galatians 5, where Paul says, I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, so that you don't do what you want. This is why we struggle, because of this battle that's going on inside of us. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And he goes on, now the works of the flesh, this old sin nature are obvious, Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousies, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything like it. So pretty much anything that looks and feels like the old sin nature. I'm warning you about these things as I warned you before, that those who practiced, not those who commit a sin one time, but those whose habitual lifestyle looks like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he goes on to talk about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. We are, we are so good at self-righteous, sinful justification, we'll read a passage like that and immediately say, well, I'm glad that's not me, that's them. Because I'm not into sorcery. I'm not into promiscuity or drunkenness or carousing or sexual immorality. Picking and choosing the ways in which we can justify how righteous we are. But look at that list. Hatred and strife and jealousy and anger, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, envy, anything like that. We're all on that list. Everyone in this room struggles with the sins of the flesh, battling against the sins of the flesh with the new man, the spirit that lives inside of you. And this is what Peter is exhorting us to do, to abstain from those types of behaviors because we have this new identity in Christ, because we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. Because we live in this world of strangers and aliens, we fight the internal battle against sin that wants to destroy our soul. And the war against our soul is if we don't abstain from these sins, if we indulge in sin, then we're hindering the ability to do what God's created us to do that we saw back in verse 9, to proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Like if we decide as Christians, I'm not going to fight sin, I'm just going to secretly indulge, maybe openly indulge. We'll still claim to be a Christian, but over here I've got this secret life. Maybe it's not so secret. Then you begin to feel the tension of this hypocrisy claiming on one hand to be this redeemed, transformed person, but if we're blatantly indulging in sinful desires, there's soul, soul-harming inconsistency. I know this is not who I am, but I'm struggling to say no to sin. I'm struggling to say yes to Jesus. But by God's grace through the work of the Spirit in us, what happens is if you are His, He will keep working in us, conforming us to His image, completing the good work that he's begun in us. 
And over time, make us more and more to the image of Christ. And so maybe for you, the weight falls today in this passage to start fighting again. Stop excusing or justifying sinful indulgences. It's like it's not okay. It's not okay to have hidden places in our life. It's not okay to openly, brazenly thumb our nose at the commands of God. And so maybe for you, you don't realize that what you think is a little habit, what you think you're getting away with is actually destroying your soul. And it, it can be so bad that it, over time, produces the fruit of you were never really his to begin with. To realize that every justification we have for sin, every human legitimate need that we are trying to fulfill in sinful ways, believe the word of God. God has a way to meet that need in a way that is holy and good and life-giving to your soul. You don't have to choose sin. And whatever way your brokenness and your wounds and your hurt and your pain is causing you to chase sin, God has a better way to meet that need that will actually be life-giving to your soul. Like if you go back to the marriage analogy, God's given us marriage as a gift. It's not good for man to be alone, to help give us a helpmate and a companion, to provide a, a way for more image bearers to be created so that we can continue to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth with image bearers to point creation back to the creator. But there's definitely a way in which you experience marriage in a way that is life-giving, in a way that is soul-destroying. Like your spouse can't be your savior. Your spouse can't fix what's broken in you. Your spouse can't heal the wounds that you experience from your growing up years. And if you put all of that weight and expectation on them, they'll let you down and you'll destroy them and cause lots of division in your marriage. Singleness is also, marriage is not ultimate. Singleness is not a curse. You don't have to be married. According to Paul, singleness can be a blessing for the kingdom. Marriage can become this thing we idolize, or it can become this place that we hide and not be known, a place where our spouse experiences all of our sin and brokenness in secret and where some of the worst abuse takes place. And we see it all the time. This guy, not him. This lady, not her. And you find out actually at home it was horrible, horrific. The problem isn't marriage. That's not the problem. But it's how you're living out and experiencing marriage. And you go through everything in your life and you think through, am I experiencing this in a soul and life-giving way or a soul-destroying way? Singleness, marriage, hobbies, money, time management, achievement, notoriety, physical exercise, food, drink, entertainment, friendship, work, citizenship in our nation, being a neighbor and resident of our city and region. If you just do a thought exercise through all those areas, how are we living life in all these areas in a way that is life-giving or soul-destroying? God has a way for us to engage and enjoy all of this. In fact, he has a way to live out all of this so that our life is beautiful. So that was the internal battle, verse 11. Verse 12, the external display. Because we are new creations in Christ, strangers and exiles, we fight the internal battle against sin in us that wants to destroy us, and we display the beautiful life of Jesus to others with the hope 
that they come to know him. Verse 12, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that they slander you as evildoers. They will observe your good works and glorify God on the day he visits. Really interesting. We conduct ourselves honorably among the Gentiles. Now, this book was written to Gentiles who had been pagan Gentiles, but had been born again. So this expression of Gentiles is meant to mean the pagan Gentiles. You redeemed Gentiles, live in an honorable way among the pagan Gentiles so that when, not if, but when, because it's coming, they see your honorable conduct and slander you as evildoers, they will end up glorifying God, which is also part of why we feel like we don't belong. We're strangers and exiles. We never fully fit in. We'll never be fully accepted by everybody. It doesn't matter how good or beautiful your good deeds are. There will always be someone who will slander you as an evildoer. We'll never be fully accepted and embraced by this world. But what is our response to that? Keep fighting the eternal battle and keep displaying the beautiful life of Jesus. It's like, a, it's like a cycle. You're doing good deeds. You're being slandered as an evildoer. I don't feel like I'm at home in this world. I feel like a stranger in exile. So abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul. And keep doing these, living this honorable conduct among the Gentiles so that as they slander you, they will glorify God. I keep saying beautiful life. The word for good in verse 12 good work in the Greek is not the word normally used for what is good versus what is bad, what is right versus what is wrong. It's the word that's translated uh, that means like attractive, like Jesse's hamburgers last night weren't like good in the sense that they were not bad. They were good in the sense of like good, I guess. I don't know. I'm sure they were, but that's when he cooks meat. It's like Good, attractive, yummy, yes, <laughs> salivating. I've heard. Yes, our works should be morally good, of course, but the Pharisees were known in their day for always doing what was morally good, but they were not attractive or desirable. They were repulsive. They pushed people away from God in their self-righteousness. Our works are supposed to draw non-Christians in and say, wow, that's beautiful. Some will still slander, but we just keep doing good. This is something that we'll keep on seeing. Verse 15 of chapter 2. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Not going to war. By doing good. Verse 15 and 16 of chapter 3. But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. Our good works will silence those who accuse us, will put them to shame because they have nothing that really has any uh, merit to their accusation that we're evildoers. No, not evildoers. I remember several years ago uh, we had... Uh, a friend from had been doing work in China who spoke to the crossing on a, s- a Sunday night, I believe. This is way back, like 2015, 2016. And she was with a, a local pastor from China who's doing work in southwest China at the time. And she said they had gotten to the point of doing this disaster to development work so well in China that they were now calling the Chinese church to come out of hiding and come into the light to keep doing the good works they're doing because even at that time, the government was saying, you guys are doing good work. You guys are caring for the people of China. 
And we can't deny the good work that you're doing. Do this more out in the open. And then everything changed. But at the time, that was, that was what was happening. 1 Peter 4, 3 through 4. For there's already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. Verse 4, they are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living, and they slander you. I can't believe you don't do this with us anymore. What's changed? You must be evil. We must be good. They slander us. They lie about us. Much of the rest of this letter is spelling out what these good works are, and the hope is eventually these good works will be observed, and they, these Gentiles who don't know Jesus, who aren't born again, will glorify God on the day he visits, which is not a reference to the return of Christ, but actually a reference to our mission as God's people now. Like the whole context of 1 Peter is life as exiles now and how our lives now can be used by God to make him known to the world around us that has so far rejected us, but we don't go to war against those who reject us. We don't insulate and isolate ourselves from them. We don't go into hiding or our, our communes and withdraw from society. No, we live among those who don't know Jesus openly, fighting the sin in us and live, doing good works that, that display a beautiful life among everyone so that Jesus is not only seen as the good way, but the beautiful way. He's actually attractive. Life with Jesus is truly how God has best wired us to live and enjoy life. That's why our vision statement as a church, we exist so all people would find joy in Christ always. We want this disciple-making process, this gospel proclamation, this life in Christ to result in joy among all people. Attraction, beauty, life-giving, soul-refreshing joy. Yes, it's hard. No one's denying that. There are struggles and tears. This is not some happy, clappy, fake Christianity. We're going to pretend like everything is fine when it's not fine. We can be really, really honest and raw about the junk that we deal with, that we walk with, that we help people with. We are in the muck of life with others, and we weep and lament with them over how hard life is, how much injustice still exists in this world, how the marginalized are still marginalized, and how there are image bearers who are not valued or heard or loved all over this world. Sin is still very present, but there's always hope because there's always Jesus. And our way of life through this hard and broken world is a life of fighting the internal battle, and displaying the beautiful life of Jesus. And this is a work of the Spirit of God that we join him in. Like we're not passive. He's urging us to abstain. He's urging us to conduct ourselves in a certain way. So, so what does this look like? Maybe one of the best examples that you could look to to see how this looks is from our dear brother that we just lost, uh, Dr. Tim Keller. This past Friday, you hear his name in our church a lot for good reason. He's a, one of the influencing voices in who we are and why we do what we do. Not that we ever, not, none of us ever knew him personally, but it's all just from what he's written and what he's proclaimed. Keller planted a church in Manhattan in New York, Manhattan, New York in 1989. Like crazy stuff. Who does that? And over the years, he has so beautifully proclaimed the gospel of Jesus. He helped people in New York. As I was reading one tribute um, over the weekend, realized not only could they be a Christian in New York City, 
but they could love their city. The city's not evil. They could do as Jeremiah encouraged us, pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to, pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when the city thrives, you will thrive. And as they've planted churches all over New York City and around the, the, the nation and the world now, this gospel-centered message of the beauty of Jesus just spreads. Keller proclaimed the same gospel-centered, orthodox, biblical truth, never compromising our faith to make it acceptable. But he did it with such winsomeness and love and intelligence that even his opponents held him in great esteem. Like one guy said over the weekend, like, this is the most unified I've seen Twitter ever. Everyone coming together in the church world and even the non-church world to say, man, what a guy, what a life. Positively profiled in the New York Times over the weekend, Washington uh, Post maybe, and other national papers in positive ways. As far as we know, and you have to say that nowadays, as far as we know, no hint of scandal, which speaks to how he fought the internal battle with sin as well, which we know some of the guys and women that we look up to don't always do that. All of his sermons available for free to read or listen to on his website, Gospel and Life. His books have become classics, even though he didn't publish the first one until just 15 years ago, in his late 50s. Faithfully just serving as a local church pastor in the last 15 years of life, God gave him this platform he never could have imagined or dreamed. Not wanting to put him on a pedestal or make too much of a man, but giving honor where honor is due. Keller is a great example, not the only example, but a great example of how to always take sin seriously, never compromise on God's word and God's truth, never have your public identity captured by partisan or ideological identities. He spoke truth but didn't get sucked into the dumpster fire of political and religious bickering. But more than anything, he made Jesus look beautiful. Like all the sermons I've listened from him to him, all the books I've read, articles, whatever, the, the, the overwhelming takeaway from all of them is Jesus is amazing. Jesus' gospel is powerful. Listen to Keller, read Keller, model Keller, others like him. There is a way for us to do this in our city. Others have done it and are doing it in their cities. And by God's grace, we can more and more figure this out. One of the many attributes I've read since Friday, maybe one of the more insightful and humbling ones, was a question that Keller was asked one day in a group of young pastors. What's one lesson in ministry you wish you would have learned earlier? And his response was very simple, prayer. I wish I would have realized earlier in my life how vital prayer is. His humility and how much he knew he needed Jesus and his gospel. And I hope and pray for, uh, for me and everyone here, this is how we live. So before I pray for us, before we take communion, a couple questions to consider, discuss in our DNA groups, our missional communities, or maybe as families this week, our friends. Number one, how at home do you feel in this world? Do you struggle more to hide your Christian identity so you can feel more at home? Or do you struggle more with being so frustrated that you just want to disappear and hide because you know this isn't home? Like maybe some of us are more tempted to just hide Christianity and indulge in the world. And maybe some of us want to leave this world, escape this world and just hide which is also hiding your Christianity. Number two, how are you doing with the internal battle? In what ways are you abstaining from sin that can be celebrated? 
And in what ways are you struggling and you need help? And then three, in what ways and to whom can you display the beautiful life of Jesus with the hope they will come to love him too? Like think of actual people and actual good works and then have discussions with people if these good works are actually beautiful. Like we have ideas to do things sometimes and we talk as brothers and sisters, you're like, I don't know if you should do that. Like I don't know that you should go down to the street corner and stand on a box and just yell at people and condemn everyone to hell. It may be technically right what you're saying is true but it's done in the spirit of animosity and condemnation it's not beautiful you're not drawing people to him father thank you for jesus how beautiful how good how loving how kind he is that he would save us though all we deserve is condemnation because we are sinful you didn't leave us in that place you came after us And Jesus has done everything, as we see in this meal we're about to eat, Jesus has done everything necessary. His life and death and resurrection are sufficient for us to become new creations. And we rejoice in that. But we also grieve and weep and mourn because we know so many around us aren't living in the joy of that salvation, aren't experiencing the life that Jesus came to provide. Our city is not flourishing because Jesus' people are living such beautiful lives. So help us, show us, give us wisdom, guide us by your spirit, empower our obedience, our repentance, and transform us. I pray for anyone here who maybe they've heard this today and they realize they've never truly come alive in Christ, that today would be the day of their salvation as they repent of their sins, as they turn to Jesus and trust in him for salvation. Help them to hear and believe and obey. Help them to share so that we can rejoice with them and and walk with them through what it means to follow Christ. Do all this work because of your great love for us through your great power. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.